All right, friends, so um, as you find a seat, how many of you know who R.C. Sproul is just by a show of hands? Okay, so the majority of people in this room, would anyone or would a few people be willing to share how R.C. Sproul has personally impacted your walk with Jesus? Maybe it was a book that you read, maybe it was a sermon that you heard at a, a Ligonier conference or Together for the Gospel, or maybe it was just simply reading uh, the, the magazine that Ligonier produces, which is uh, Table Talk, or maybe you were listening to a Renewing Your Mind, that radio broadcast that... Um, at least three million viewers internationally here every day. And so uh, who, who would be willing to share um, in the ways that R.C. Sproul has impacted? Sam? Yeah, so two things is great. So uh, the book that, um, if I'm not mistaken, that, that Sam is referring to is, is it the uh, Crucial Question series. So like there's numerous of them. There's great ones on who is the Holy Spirit, what are parables. That's something that we're going to be looking at in the fall in our student ministry. And it's ironic, but like the first thing that you shared, like you hated R.C. Well, R.C. hated his professor in college uh, because he was uh, someone who did not hold to the doctrines of grace and couldn't stand him, and then the Lord used that professor to eventually open up his heart to the beauties and glories of Christ and his, uh, of God and his sovereignty. That's great. Yeah. Anyone else have a personal story in the way? Allison. Oh, wonderful. pretty sure, uh, I don't want to go on record saying, I think Nightlings was his first children's book, or something about the shadow of a king, or something like that, but what's so beautiful about that is his children's books, to Allison's point, are great for family discipleship, they're great for understanding the simplicity of the gospel, and then thirdly, his wife, for numerous years, Vesta, actually, those were his per, uh, her personal favorite books that R.C. wrote. It wasn't Chosen by God, Holiness of God, What is Reformed Theology. It was actually his children's book, so that's wonderful. Anyone else? Okay. Dan. Dan. 
Mm, that's right. So you, so in, in some sense, so um, I think most of us probably in this room have been personally impacted by the thoughtfulness and the quotations of R.C. Sproul. Again, I don't want to rush to application because I know it's at the very end, but you don't, he doesn't say quotes like that if you're just a casual reader of Scripture. You have to give your life over to the reading of the Scriptures and to dig deep into God's Word. And I think that's why we have like, such a quote as that, because he's been profoundly impacted by the Gospel. So, good, good word. Well, first... I agree. And plus, I'm sure what you can hear in, in those audio recordings of RC is a raspy voice, cigarettes, uh, la- la- laughter. Um, and then I, I, I assume when I think of RC Sproul, not only do I think of his fresh curly haircut, by the, o- the only way, the only person who liked the haircut was Vesta, and that's all that mattered to RC. Um, but I, I, I just recall in the Holiness of God lectures uh, hearing chalk a chalkboard and chalk and him constantly underlining certain words and things like that. So, yeah, that's good. Uh, Personally, the first time I ever read anything by R.C. Sproul was actually during the early years in my college. Um, It wasn't anything like uh, Holiness of God or What is Reformed Theology, but it was actually a book entitled Proclaiming a Cross-Centered Theology. I think it was a sophomore in college. And the name of that book was actually uh, the theme of Together for the Gospel in 2008 where the book consisted of uh, various speakers' sermons in that specific conference. And in that book, it contains R.C.'s sermon entitled, The Curse Motif of the Atonement, coming from Galatians chapter 3, 10 to 14, where he covers curses and blessings in biblical history and how it's connected to the Day of Atonement. So I still actually have this underlined in that book uh, that I still have in my possession as a sophomore in college. And this is what he says at the very end of that sermon that I think is profound. I know that every person who has not been covered by the righteousness of Christ draws every breath under the curse of God. If you believe that, you will stop adding to the gospel and start preaching it with clarity and boldness. Because, dead friends, dear friends, it is the only people we have, uh, the only hope that we have, and it is hope enough. So from that point on, I began to devour R.C. Sproul's books. So from that point... Uh, I read his book on apologetics and actually used it as a template on Sunday evenings when I was doing an internship as a student minister in Texas. And then from that point on, that's when I got my hands on what is Reformed theology and then in my possession, chosen by God and holiness of God. And it would be holiness of God that was paradigm shifting for me in my faith. And so, um, obviously, R.C. Sproul is the founder of Ligonier Ministries, and this is what their mission statement says online proclaiming, teaching, and defending the holiness of God in all its fullness as to many people as possible. So I've got a question for you. If someone walked up to you 
Um, maybe it was at a grocery store. Maybe at a, like you guys are having a conversation over a family din- dinner, and someone asks you, what is the holiness of God? What would you say? So someone says, hey, quickly, succinctly, what is the holiness of God? His set-apartness. It's a wonderful answer. What else? So we got set-apartness. What else? Sam, you just took it away from me, man. Anyways, come on. So, yeah, so... To Sam's point, it's the quality, it's the, I'm in Isaiah 6, that is repeated three times, so, um, and that's, by the way, the only time in Isaiah 6 that a quality or a characteristic or attribute of God is mentioned three times, I think, actually, in the entirety of the Bible. That's right, so it's set up above all the other attributes. Anyone else, how would you define the holiness of God? Both answers are wonderful. R.C. uses, in the holiness of God, transcendent separateness. So the, that biblical truth, the holiness of God, was the heartbeat of R.C. Sproul. And there's no better passage that I think that could capture this reality that Tracy and Sam are talking about than Isaiah chapter 6, 1 to 8, which may be the drumbeat um, of R.C.'s ministry. So Isaiah chapter 6, 1 to 8, you can follow along with me on the slide or read in your Bible. Starting in verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to him, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. And he said, "Uh, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people. And then we have the remainder of verses 10 to 13. So in this chapter, we have the prophet Isaiah And we get a clear picture in this scene of scripture where the unholy comes before the holy one of the universe in all of his splendor and majesty and glory. And friend, what we have here in Isaiah 6 is a breathtaking scene of what we're seeing. The holy contrasted with the unholy. And so if you don't own Holiness of God, that classic book by R.C. Sproul, please go buy it. It's available at the bookstall. And read chapter 2, entitled, Holy, Holy, Holy. So what we see in this passage is that this specific king, Uzziah, died in 8th century B.C. 
Now, he was no king after God's own heart, like King David, but he was, uh, at least earlier in his reign, which I believe he started his reign at 16, all right, can you imagine? Um, He was one of the better kings in Israel's history in much of his own reign. Now, per 2 Chronicles 26.4, Uzziah reigned in godliness at the beginning of his reign, but in the end, this specific king in Israel's history received leprosy by arrogantly claiming for himself the rights that only God had given priests that day, to that day. Now, when the priests of the temple tried to stop him in this scene, Uzziah became furious. He became enraged. And so leprosy broke out on his forehead, and he died a leper, cut off from the house of Israel. Now, as we approach this scene, it seems that there is mourning, there's personal mourning, and perhaps even national mourning over the loss of this king. And so what we see in this scene is that the prophet Isaiah is captured by and witnesses the greater king, the Lord of hosts, God himself. Even the angelic creatures cover their face from the transcendent separateness of God. And those creatures begin to say to one another, Verse 3, which is arguably the foundation of R.C.'s life and ministry that says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. On that verse in R.C.'s classic holiness of God, this is what R.C. states. This is beautiful. Only once in sacred scripture is an attribute of God elevated to the third degree to the superlative degree, attaching super importance. Only once is a characteristic of God mentioned three times in succession. In succession. The Bible never says that God is love, 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 or mercy, 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 or wrath, 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 or justice, justice, justice. It does say that God is holy, holy, holy. And as a result, when God appeared in the temple, everything began to move and quake, including Isaiah as he recognized his sinfulness in light of God's holiness. And so we see in verse 5, the first three words that he utters, woe is me. And in verse 5, he sees not only his sin as it's contrasted with a holy God, but the sins of Israel, meaning that sins are, per- are pervasive. And instead, this is the good thing, instead of letting Isaiah sit in his sin and in his creatureliness, what do we see? God sent one of the seraphim touching his lips with burning hot coal. And what does the text say? Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And it's foreshadowing the one who would come, the word and flesh, the person and work of Jesus who in a sinless life, in his substitutionary sacrifice on the cross and through his bodily resurrection, he would thereby give those who repent of their sins and turn in faith to him access to this holy God. A God, by the way, that when we enter into glory, we will see face to face as he is. He would finally take the guilt away and atone for the sins of his people. So this reality in Isaiah chapter 6 of God's holiness would be the bedrock of R.C.'s life and ministry and the ministry of Ligonier. So R.C. Sproul, uh, these are the early years. He was born February 13, 1939 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to parents Robert Cecil and Mayor uh, Mayor Sproul. 
Uh, growing up, he loved his, parent, his parents, especially his dad. He would actually lose his dad at a young age, and that would be particularly hard on him later on in life. So he loved his parents, especially his dad, and he grew up loving and breathing and playing sports. Uh, he was nicknamed Sonny and was always referred to in the local newspapers as Sonny Sproul during his junior and high school years. He played baseball, he played basketball, he played football, and I'm sure everyone in Fayetteville, Arkansas knows this, ice hockey. So uh, being from Pittsburgh, not only was, RC, was there a level of grit and toughness to R.C. Sproul that was even pr uh, prevalent in his life as he was battling sickness later on, um, but also um, being from Pittsburgh, he especially loved the Pittsburgh Pirates. In fact, he still remembers, uh, he remembered up until the latter portion of his life, the, the, the first baseball game that he went to uh, with the Pirates winning uh, with a score of 5-3 to three against the Reds. What I think is particularly striking is that R.C. Sproul was actually raised in a liberal Presbyterian church. Uh, not politically left, but a theologically liberal church um, there in Pittsburgh. In fact, when R.C. Sproul later would be converted to the Lord and his eyes would see and behold the glory and holiness of the Lord, he would go back to that pastor, to, to excitingly so, telling the pastor about his conversion and this is what R.C. experienced somewhat in seminary, but also what he experienced growing up. And here's what the pastor said, if that's what you would call him, to R.C. If you believe in the physical resurrection of Christ, you're a fool. That's what he said in response to R.C.'s conversion. R.C. Sproul also married his future wife, Vesta, and he, and she, and he met her in 1945. In R.C. Sproul's A Life, which is a biography I highly recommend, Stephen Nichols notes this. R.C. would later say that during his elementary and junior high years, he was all about one thing, sports. It was likely too, though, sports and Vesta. If you were to look on uh, most trees lining Old Clariton Road and McClellan Drive, where they lived at the time, you'd see four initials carved, R.C. plus V.V., and after that first encounter, a few more years passed before R.C. and Vesta became on-again, off-again boyfriend and girlfriend. And ultimately, the story of R.C. would be that of R.C. and Vesta. So R.C. married Vesta in 1960, spending over 57 years of marriage, and their marriage was filled with love and laughter and godliness. R.C. held his wife in such high regard that I think the very first book, now it's gone through a number of editions, but the very first book that R.C. wrote was actually on uh, an exposition of the Apostles' Creed, and the foreword to that original book, he said this, to Vesta, to the Romans, a pagan goddess, to me, a godly wife. One of the hallmark moments the hallmark moment in R.C. Sproul's life was his conversion. So in September of 1957, Sproul started his first semester at Westminster College in Pennsylvania, and his roommate was his childhood friend, Johnny. So R.C. and Johnny had every intention of heading to Youngstown, Ohio, uh, as if they're not mischievous, to go into the bars because those bars in Ohio would not check your ID. And so they were wanting to party and have a good time in college. And the long story short is that they got in the car and Johnny and R.C. realized 
oh no, we're out of cigarettes. <laughs> so they hopped, and, uh, hopped out, they went back into the lobby of their college dorm room to get a pack of, I have no idea what this means, lucky strikes. Um, that's what you know. Are they still a thing? I don't know. They are? Okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> you just showed everybody you smoke, man. Anyways, I love it. Um, so they, they go back into the college dorm room to get a, a pack of Lucky Strikes from, and this is what blew my mind. I'm 30. I had no idea about this from a cigarette vending machine. Do you guys even know that exists? That's incredible. Wow. How many of you were alive uh, when, ci- when cigarette vending machines were a thing? <laughs> awesome. Okay. Um, so, I'm sorry. <laughs> so, look, look. So, he goes to the cigarette vending machine and he drops a quarter in the, in, uh, the vending machine uh, down the slot and he bent down to grab a pack of cigarettes and he saw two guys. Uh, two upperclassmen, one of those upperclassmen was a star football player of the college team, and they mentioned to R.C. and Johnny to come over as they were in a Bible study. And it was the first time R.C. Sproul ever witnessed a Bible study in his life, and it's noted that one of them turned uh, with an open Bible in R.C.'s direction, pointed to it, and instructed R.C. to look at the verse that they were pointing to, and it was Ecclesiastes 11, verse 3. Here's what the second part of that verse says. If a tree falls to the south or to the north in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. Here's what's remarkable. In that moment, God used that verse to draw R.C. to himself. He used that verse to make R.C. Sproul born again. R.C., when he looks at this verse, the second part of Ecclesiastes 11.3, He saw himself as that tree. Dead, fallen, to the side, rotten, and decaying. And that night, that very same day, that night, he knelt down at his bed in college. He prayed to God and he would ask God to forgive him of his sins through Christ. Who knew? R.C. was reaching for cigarettes the day, that day, while God was reaching for his heart and converted him. R.C. Sproul would later note this, I think I'm probably the only person in church history that was converted to Christ by that verse. Months later, in the month of February, his later-to-be wife, Vesta, was converted during a devotional and prayer meeting that R.C. invited her to. So I think there's, it's worth stopping, and I think there's two things worth noting. God's word is powerful, isn't it? It's sufficient. God can use a verse like Ecclesiastes 11, verse 3, to bring someone to saving faith. And I think that's a wonderful testimony to the sufficiency of Scripture as a means of salvation. Here's the second thing. I really want this to stick with you, because I think we hear it in the pulpit, we hear it on Sunday nights, just I pray that the Lord would give you listening ears to this. Don't underestimate inviting someone to a Bible study. Don't underestimate the value of studying the Bible with someone. I mean, consider R.C. with these two uh, college classmates or even Vesta in which R.C. invited Vesta to a prayer gathering. 
let me encourage you, go to the bookstall, grab David Helm's one-to-one Bible reading, and you won't be sorry. Use that as a guide to get the ball rolling and studying the Bible with a friend or coworker or church member. And then not only get that, start coming to the nine o'clock hour starting next Sunday as Nick and Andrew and Connor dive into the topic of how to study your Bible because you'll find that that can be an ordinary means that God uses to exalt his extraordinary grace in someone's life. So not only was R.C. Sproul's conversion uh, foundational to his ministry, but so was a midnight walk to the chapel. So R.C.'s conversion caused him to consume the scriptures. It actually just took a matter of weeks, uh, and he read the Bible front to back. That's a hungry Christian. Additionally, a midnight walk to Westminster College uh, Chapel changed his life, and that moment, along with his conversion, served as a catalyst to a lifelong pursuit of studying God, specifically the holiness of God. And so that scene that we're talking about, this midnight walk in a, uh, on a winter night to the Westminster College Chapel, that scene is recorded in chapter one of Holiness of God. I was uh, going to try to summarize that, but I'm going to read part of that in Holiness of God, uh, starting on page two of this updated version. Here's what part of that story, how that part of that story is recalled. The chapel lay in the shadow of Old Main Tower. The door was made of heavy oak with a Gothic arch. I swung it open and entered the narthex. The door fell shut behind me with a clanging sound that reverberated from the stone walls of the nave. The echo startled me. It was a strange contrast to the sounds of daily chapel services where the opening and closing of the doors were muffled by the sounds of students shuffling to their assigned places. Now, the sound of the door was amplified into the void of midnight. I waited for a moment in the narthex, allowing my eyes a few seconds to adjust to the darkness. The faint glow of the moon seeped through the muted stained glass windows. I could make out the outline of the pews in the center aisle that led to the chancel steps. I felt a majestic sense of space accented by the vaulted arches of the ceiling. They seemed to draw my soul upward, a sense of height that evoked a feeling of giant hand, of a giant hand reaching down to pick me up. I moved slowly and deliberately towards the chancel steps. The sound of my shoes against the stone floor evoked terror-filled images of German soldiers marching in hobnailed boots along the cobblestone streets. Each step resounded down the center aisle as I reached the carpet-covered chancel. There I sank to my knees. I had reached my destination. I was ready to meet the source of the summons that had disturbed my rest. I was in a posture of prayer, but I had nothing to say. I knelt there quietly, allowing the sense of the presence of a holy God to fill me. The beat of my heart was, tell was telltale, a thump-thump against my chest. An icy chill started at the base of my spine and crept up to my neck. Fear swept over me. I fought the impulse to run from the foreboding presence that gripped me. The terror passed, but soon it was followed by another wave, and this wave was different. It flooded my soul with unspeakable peace, a peace that brought instant rest and repose to my troubled spirit. And at once I was comfortable. I wanted to linger there, to say nothing, to do nothing, simply to bask in the presence of God. And that moment was life-transforming. Something deep in my spirit was being settled once for all. From this moment, there could be no turning back. 
there could be no erasure of the indelible imprint of its power. I was alone with God, a holy God, an awesome God, a God who could fill me with terror in one second and with peace in the next. So R.C. eventually graduated. He began seminary at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, which was largely theologically left except for a couple of professors. And one of the professors, John Gerstner, was a theological conservative who had actually had the biggest impact on R.C. And it was actually during his days at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary where Sproul was introduced to and impacted not only by this specific professor up close, but from afar, he was discipled by Jonathan Edwards in his theology and writings. In fact, R.C. Sproul noted this, studying Edwards led me to be a convinced Calvinist. Now, while in seminary, his first two ministry roles were that of a youth minister. And in his second ministry role, that of a youth minister, during his senior year of college, he was actually serving as a youth minister to a church that consisted of, of, of uh, Hungarians. So the church members in this brief season called R.C. their pastor. And R.C., early on in his life, was in the difficult trenches of pastoral ministry rather quickly during that time. In fact, one woman called R.C. one night, late at night, to come to her house because this woman made it particularly known to R.C. that she did not like her daughter's boyfriend. Couldn't stand him. And so she wanted the pastor, she wanted R.C. to do something about it. Now, I have no idea what she was thinking in her mind to, to have R.C. do something about it. But anyways, he walked to her home and, uh, and, and went up a few steps on the porch and began to knock on the door. And here's how it's recounted. When this woman came to the door, she was intoxicated. She was drunk out of her mind, and she was waving a gun around in R.C.'s face. She was ranting and screaming about how much she hated her daughter's boyfriend and what she would like to do to him, which she's intoxicated. I assume that we know what she would like to do to him as she's waving a revolver in the air. So can you imagine being a young minister and, and seeing this and it's like, oh man, yeah, prospect of everything is about to go down to the drain. You're going to be with Jesus. And so R.C. Sproul did all that he could do as she was waving the gun in the round and all he said was this rather calmly, Miss, you don't want to shoot me. So that worked. And this intoxicated woman gave the gun to R.C. and calmed down. You know, as hard as it is, that's a sweet reminder of God's providence over his people, specifically R.C. Sproul. But also it's a, it's a reminder that ministry is not some pie-in-the-sky, messy-free endeavor, is it? It, ministry is about sheep, and if you know anything about sheep, sometimes they bark like dogs, sometimes they're messy, and they're still in, in the battle of fighting their sin in the process of sanctification. So th they are sheep in need of under-shepherds like R.C. Sproul, seeking to imitate the good shepherd in Jesus. While in seminary, R.C. Sproul actually took an elective on the Council of Trent, and the Council of Trent actually served as one of the three responses by the Roman Catholic Church to the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century, and it's known as the Counter-Reformation. So this council, which was together for 1545 to 1563, declared that anyone who held to the belief and notion of justification by faith alone was anathema, or accursed, thinking of Galatians chapter 1. So the article alone 
was one of the battle cries of the Reformation and one of the key distinctions between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism and was also one of the hallmarks of R.C.'s ministry. So R.C., during this elective, he studied this in depth and justification by faith alone in God's holiness would really serve as the two pillars of R.C.'s ministry. Before we go any further, quick question. What is the doctrine of justification by faith alone? So justification by faith alone, what does that have anything to do with the holiness of God? Why are, why are those two areas, those two theological areas of grave importance, how do they relate to one another? So you've heard answers that God is transcendently separate, that he's repeated, holy, holy, holy. Go ahead, Sam. Okay, yeah, that's right. So justification by faith alone recognizes that we are powerless, that the only way to be saved and be made right is by faith alone, not faith plus works, because our works are futile in contrasting that with the holiness of God. That's excellent. Um, so this is what I actually think is... Can you all amen to the gospel? Yeah. Amen. All right, so this is like the most underrated book by, uh, called Faith Alone that deals with the Council of Trent. It deals with the article, article of justification by faith alone. I actually wanted to give this out today. Many of you have been so faithful and encouraging in this class, and I actually want to give this to Rob Arndt, if that's cool, brother. Oh, yeah. Give it up for Rob. Why not? <laughs> all right. So as graduation approached, R.C. wanted to pastor and to have a full-time job, and he and Vesta uh, have been married at this time for four years, during which they have been living with an income of never more, this is profound, of $2,000 a year. So Gerstner, the professor that uh, R.C. had such high regard for, was working behind the scenes to work against R.C. Sproul becoming a pastor. He saw that, that the young Sproul was academically bright, and he pulled strings with people that he knew for R.C. to pursue doctoral work. And so Sproul began doctoral work at the Free University of Amsterdam from 1964 to 1965. And that's where R.C. spent 10 to 12 hours a day studying Latin and Dutch and German and what I thought what was particularly striking during his time there was really a baker's story. 
Um, so R.C.'s uh, daughter, three or, uh, I think she was three at the time, Sherry, would always greet the ba- a baker and request in Dutch the daily order. Good morning, Mr. Baker. A half of loaf sliced white bread, please. So the bread was so fresh that steam rose from it, which it was unlike <laughs> like Wonder Bread from America, right, that is like filled with so many preservatives. So this meant that this particular bread in Amsterdam lasted only a day. So R.C. actually thought, um, he obviously thought it was memorable because he notes that this is the best bread that he's ever heaven, uh, had, and he likened it to biblical manna from heaven. So R.C. received his doctor's degree in the Dutch academic system. The doctors meant that who would be called a doctor? It is the degree in that Dutch academic system in which the person pursues and does all of the classes and the exams, but did not write the dissertation and finish the doctoral program. And so three things led to R.C. Sproul and Vesta leaving Amsterdam and going back to the States. The first thing is that Vesta was pregnant with her second child, and she had a lot of complications during her first pregnancy, specifically with a lot of bleeding. And then secondly, R.C.'s uh, RC's mom was dying. And thirdly, he was asked to temporarily serve as a professor at Westminster College while a Bible faculty professor was headed for a one-year sabbatical. After receiving his doctor's degree, uh, Sproul became a prof at Gordon College in Wenham, Massachusetts. And I thought this was particularly, uh, particularly funny. R.C., well, not this part, R.C. was pretty miserable at Gordon College, and due to the college, uh, college's fundamentalist tendencies, which was moralistic and legalistic at times, uh, I mean, for crying out loud, R.C. and Vesta, like, two of their greatest hobbies was smoking cigarettes and playing cards, uh, which was against the, the school code of conduct for students. So one day, R.C. Sproul was summoned to go to the dean's office, and while waiting, the dean's secretary said to him, Professor Sproul! You smell like you've been around someone who's been smoking. And he replied, indeed, I, I have. It, it's me. She said, back, she said back to him rather arrogantly, hm. it's getting so that you can't tell who's a real Christian anymore. And R.C. Sproul had a reply for that too. He said, well, I'm a theologian, so I can tell you that a real Christian is someone who loves Jesus. Eventually, the Sprouls landed at Commonwealth School of Theology in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And I think this is worth noting as well. One of R.C.'s students was known as Bishop Walters of the African Methodist Episcopal Church in Norristown, Pennsylvania. And Bishop Walters invited his instructor, R.C., to come preach at that specific church. Now, R.C. had never been exposed to an African-American preaching context or an African-American church. And so the bishop told R.C. that he had, listen to this, one hour and 30 minutes to preach a sermon. Which means y'all need to show Brad Wheeler a ton of grace. Goodness. Goodness. One hour, 30 minutes. R.C. Sproul had never preached more than 30 minutes in his life. So this is what he did. <laughs> he strung up three sermons together, and the congregation, as R.C. Sproul, this Presbyterian, they're, they're shouting, Amen! And preach it, preacher man. And R.C. Sproul was not used to this. He couldn't even hear himself think, and so he asked for the bishop's help to quiet down the congregation. Well, and I assume they did. So the next day in class, students asked Bishop Walters, Hey, Bishop, 
what happened yesterday? And Bishop Walters said this, the prof started preaching. People were shouting and yelling amen and calling out, and the poor prof couldn't hear himself think. So I had to stand up and tell the congregation to quiet down and let the man preach. Here it is. He got to preaching, and the ghost came by. R.C. said that was the highest compliment that he ever received for preaching in his entire life. Then the ghost came by. R.C.'s preaching was marked by what the Puritans would pray for, unction from on high. So let me ask you something, sheep. Do you pray that for Brad and your other elders who weekly handle the word of God? Do you pray that in their prep and through the preaching of the word that the Holy Spirit would come by? So, R.C. was teaching um, different lay people and, uh, at, at a specific church, and he loved teaching Sunday school. In fact, he said, this was my first real taste for adult education where I taught a course on the person and work of Christ to doctors and bankers and attorneys and businessmen and housewives. And so what we know is that R.C. was bored with seminary, and he actually just loved teaching everyday people the word of God. And that propelled him for the vision for Ligonier Ministries. It was born in that moment between 1968 and 1969, where R.C. actually told a woman, Dora Hillman, of his dream of having a study center where he and others could teach on broad range of subjects, all orbiting around the singular subject of theology. So Sproul established the Ligonier Valley Study Center in 1971, located in western Pennsylvania, and he received as housewarming gifts a pair, a brother and sister, of German shepherds, Hallie and Hosey. And the Sprouls would own German shepherds from 1971 until their last one, a year before R.C. Sproul passed, where his last German shepherd would pass away, known as Roxy. One quick story. As R.C. was living in western Pennsylvania, uh, Western Pennsylvania is known for hunting, uh, especially deer and turkey. And Jacob Killian's just wanting to say amen. Um, but R.C. Sproul wanted to hunt, and sometimes the dogs and the puppies would get in the way of R.C.'s hunting. And by the way, R.C. would often take Vesta hunting as well. So to keep the German shepherds contented at home, R.C. would actually put one of his cassette tapes in the cassette player and turn it on loud so the dogs would think that he was in the room behind the closed door. <laughs> so he would slip out of his study window and the dogs would be unaware that he had left. That's just one of the many humorous things about R.C. Sproul. Um, he lived there in the Ligonier Valley Study Center, was, which was actually their home of 13 years of students learning and living life with the Sprouls, which was similar to uh, the Luthers, because if you remember, Luther, uh, Martin Luther and Katerina were given the Black Cloister, which is the monastery by Frederick the Wise as a gift to them, as a wedding gift, and it's where Luther studied, he taught, and lived life with his family and a company of students, um, which is what also Sproul did. In 1984, Ligonier relocated to Orlando, Florida, and from there we get audio-video teaching series. You get Renewing Your Mind, which is a radio broadcast, which I'm sure many of you are aware of, which has an international audience of three million, and there's even the Table Talk uh, magazine. Now, in 1997, some of Sproul's audience at Ligonier were regular visitors to the Sproul home. 
In fact, a group of families within that audience wanted to start a church and have R.C. serve as the lead pastor. Looking back on that moment years later, R.C. would say this, Then in 1997, God did something I never anticipated. He placed me in the position of preaching weekly as a leader of the congregation of his people, St. Andrews in Sanford, Florida. Now, one thing that stands out about R.C.'s pastoral ministry is what marked the pulpit at St. Andrew's Chapel, something that marks, I believe, our own preaching pulpit at UBC. As Sproul was being interviewed one day, uh, the person asked him, what advice do you have for new preachers on what to preach? And this is what R.C. would say, preach books. He added, make sure your congregation knows the Gospels because you can't give them too much Jesus. And he said, be sure to Romanize, thinking of Paul's letter to the Romans because of the deep theology and doxology, Romanize your people. And he reminded pastors that, quote, the power of the word is cumulative. It takes time to grow, but over time, the consistent preaching of the word will not only have an immediate effect, but also a cumulative effect. So he once told a group of pastors on the topic of preaching, and hopefully that's an encouragement to many of you, when I get discouraged, and I do, I tell myself, it's not my job to convict, it's my job to preach the word and to trust that God will honor his word. So more than 60 years, R.C. labored to defend, though not limited to, the following truths, key tenets of Reformed theology, the central thrust of the gospel, which is the article of justification by faith alone, a classical understanding of apologetics, which differs from a presuppositionalist perspective, the inerrancy of the Bible, and a high view of God, which would stem from the holiness of God. And so one would argue that God has wholly impacted all other doctrines that R.C. actually taught. And as you can see from Sproul's ministry and legacy, there's a number of things to consider. He played a lead role in the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy and served as a president for that council. He is the founder of Renewing Your Mind. He did countless lecture series, table talk, the founding of Reformation College, Countless books were written, uh, just going back to what Allison said, even countless children's books, which Vesta's were, were Vesta's favorites. He was also the general editor of a study Bible. I think it was the New Geneva Study Bible in 1995, the, ES, the Reformation Study Bible in 2005, and then the newest edition, the Reformation Study Bible in 2015, where he served as a general editor. And here's a really important one. He actually wrote towards the latter portion of his life two hymn CD projects. Glory to the Holy One and Saints of Zion. As we consider the outcome of their way of life, or R.C.'s way of life, R.C.'s last ligonier conference was fitting as his life would come to a close that year, which centered on the Reformation 500 celebration. And his message zeroed on the objective content of the gospel, so the person and work of Jesus, his sinlessness, the substitutionary atonement of Christ, his bodily resurrection, the ascension of Christ, and the return of Christ. So that's the objective, but then also the subject appropriation of the gospel. In other words, how then does the life of obedience of Jesus and how does his work on the cross, his death, how do its benefits get appropriated by us? And so that's where he unpacked the heart of the Reformation, which was by faith alone. R.C.'s marriage to Vesta was by all accounts a wonderful marriage. They could pick at each other with jokes and laughter. And after preaching Hebrews chapter 2, 1 to 4, Vesta jokingly said to R.C., which was his last sermon, the following, 
you can die now, sweetheart. That was the best sermon you've ever preached. It was her way of saying that R.C.'s sermon captured so much of what R.C. had taught and lived over the course of his life and ministry. Before passing away, Sproul's family were gathered around his bed and were listening to that hymn CD, The Glory to the Holy One. Listen, as they were listening, the family around R.C., they were listening to the Highland hymn, and it moved into the final verse that said this, The beatific glory of you that now our souls still long to see will make us all at once anew and like him forever be. Then refrain one final time. Lutes will sing, pipers play when we see him face to face on that day. And with that final note, in God's providence, R.C. Sproul drew his last breath. And on his gravestone, which, which is beside the church at St. Andrew's Chapel, it says, R.C. Sproul, February 13th, 1939, December 14th, 2017, he was a kind man redeemed by a kinder Savior. As we close, there's two brief points of application. Number one is adore the Holy One of Israel. God is not to be casually approached, but to be feared with reverential awe and worship. We adore God, friends, in studying the Bible, praying the Bible, singing to him and about him, listening to him through the preached word, with it all leading to obedience to him. James chapter 1 verse 22 says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. What we know about R.C., is that R.C. adored the holy triune God of Scripture as seen in his life, ministry, and especially his book, The Holiness of God. Listen to these quotes. Again, this is not a casual reading of Scripture. This is a man who is committed to the deep things of God and his word, which is not unique to R.C. It should be true of you as well, Christian. If God is not sovereign, he is not God. Uzzah assumed that his hand was less polluted than the earth. We are secure not because we hold tightly to Jesus, but because he holds tightly to us. When God says something, the argument is over. When there's something in the word of God that I don't like, the problem is not with the word of God, it's with me. A God who is all love, all grace, all mercy, no sovereignty, no justice, no holiness, and no wrath is an idol. Loving a holy God is beyond our moral power. The only kind of God we can love by our sinful nature is an unholy God, an idol made by our own hands. Unless we were born of the Spirit of God, unless God sheds his holy love in our hearts, unless he stoops in his grace to change our hearts, we will not love him. Friends, lastly, theology leads to doxology, which I think encompasses R.C.'s life. R.C.'s conversion and that moment in the chapel led to a lifelong pursuit of knowing God. It's not unique to R.C., but it's the command of every Christian to follow the Lord and to pursue the Lord. R.C.'s pursuit of God led to a life of praiseworthy obedience, which bore gospel-bearing fruit. And so as we think about R.C.'s life and theology leading to doxology, I just want you to begin to ask yourself these diagnostic questions. Why do you read the Bible and other theological works and books? Is it to be praised or to praise him? Is it to be seen or to see him for who he is? Secondly, what do you believe is the end goal of studying God's word? Do you believe it's simply an intellectual exercise to result in theological snobbery? 
or a pursuit that results to the praise of the riches of his glory and your conformity to the image of Jesus. And lastly, as you consider the songs that you're about to hear in our main gathering, do you find the words about God and the gospel leading you to deep praise and doxology? Or rather, do you find yourself depending on the chords, the mood, and the atmosphere to frame your doxology? Something worth considering. All right, I'm going to ask my brother real quick, Jackson Martin, as we come to a close, to come up here. And it's kind of an awkward walk. We'll give you a hand. All right. So I'm going to see if we can turn this on. How do you do this? There you go. You want to get it in there? Okay. All right, Jack. So we've been meeting together, what, last couple of years? And we've gone through Surviving Religion 101 by Michael Cooper. We're currently going through Systematic Theology by Wayne Greenham. But the first book that we went through countless mornings at Chick-fil-A, Yep. was the holiness of God. Mm-hmm. And so what, what, do you, what is the book's main point, and how did it make a drastic impact on your life, brother? Sure. Um, the main point was really to understand, like, who God is, yeah. like what he is, and try to describe to us, like, how different God is from us, but also how we can apply God's personhood in our life. Yeah. You know, and then, like, the, like, kind of applied to me a lot was, like, yeah. Um, I never really thought about it. Like God's holiness is, it's such a different, it's not on the same level um, as all of his other characteristics. Mm-hmm. It's like you were talking about earlier, holy, holy, holy. It's all three, like God is holy and that much more, you know. Oh, that's so, good. Yeah. He's holy and that much more. That's, that's who he is. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did the book, did the book correct any misunderstandings of perhaps you had of God prior to reading the book? Um it kind of just gave me a greater understanding of how far apart we are from God, like how set apart we are from him, or set apart he is from us. Hmm. Um, R.C. Sproul kind of just details in each of his chapters on the set apartness of God, but also how God's love and pureness draws us in when we don't want to go anywhere close to him. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I think you and I like literally just wanted to underline every sentence yeah. and use an ink pen on nearly bro every chapter. Did you have, maybe not, did you have a favorite chapter no, or I any did. favorite quotes? Yeah. Let's see, let me find it. Um, the favorite chapter was chapter seven, War and Peace with the Holy God. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, this quote's kind of, it's a little bit long, but it's, he's talking about um, Jacob and how even though Jacob, his father was Abraham, and he grew up in what, like, his, you know, Abraham was a very strong believer and a very important figure in Christianity. But um, how Jacob kind of lived for the world, even though he was, you know, raised by Abraham, who God used abundantly. Um, but Jacob just lived for himself and would try to just do whatever he could so that he could, uh, you know, uh, live how he wanted to. But then it talks about how... Um, God draws out, like, goes out to Jacob and says, I want you to come here. And then he goes to Jacob in a dream. Uh, whenever Jacob, like, lays his head on that rock whenever he's sleeping after escaping. And he's like, God goes to him in the staircase and he sees people going, uh, angels going up the staircase and angels going down the staircase. And he's just talking about how um, he realized that um, this is, 
the writers of Exodus showing us that um, God will draw near to us and we will try to push away, but no matter how far we draw, God's holiness will always draw us in. Amen. Yeah. And then last question, brother. Why should anyone here read this book or read it with other Christians? Yeah, so I loved reading it with you, obviously. Same. Um, right. But uh, <laughs> it just allows for a deeper understanding of not only who God is, but who you're reading with. So it allowed us to have great conversations, deep conversations. Yeah. And uh, it just, um, yeah, gave me another brother in Christ to talk to whenever I need help, whenever I'm struggling. And uh, just to build another friendship. So appreciate yeah. you, brother. Don't you love when a disciple has his stuff ready to go? Um, awesome. Appreciate you. Yeah. Two quick things um, before we close with the doxology. Who would be helped then? Uh, what Jack just talked about with the holiness of God. Who does not own? How, how about this? Raise your hand if you do not own this book. Okay. Got you right here. All right. And then lastly, before we close with the doxology and all depart uh, to go to the main gathering, two things. Number one, I want to thank you uh, for being here for these 18 weeks and for allowing myself, uh, Ryan Berry, and Jeremy Muller, and Nick Roark to serve you. This class has been, uh, from what I've heard in numerous conversations, a blessing to you, but it's also been a blessing and edifying to my own soul. So thank you for week in and week out coming here and being a part of this uh, series. And then lastly, Nick, where are you? Nick's going to hate this. Uh, I want to thank Nick for allowing myself and Ryan and Jeremy to be a part of this equipping class. So if you don't mind, could you give it up for one of our pastors? All right. Ryan Barry, you want to lead us in the doxology one final time? <laughs>